you can step up to that starting line at the race and be like, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go today. But you have your 14 weeks, your 12, eight weeks of training in your back pocket. And so you just have to trust your training. You don't know how the race is going to go, but you have to have faith in the work that you've done to get to this point. It's worked for me in running and it continues to work for me in my career. What's going on, everyone? Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 288 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I talk to inspirational people about everything from their highest highs and toughest moments to essential tips on how to live a healthier, happier, more motivated life. We all go through our fair share of hurdles. My goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride towards your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. For today's episode, I am elated to bring you my conversation with Nikki Oganaki. She is the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire and a dear, dear friend of mine. Nikki and I met through the industry God knows how long ago and have had the opportunity not only to share many trips, many runs, many glasses of wine together over the years. And we're going to talk about all of that in today's episode. I candidly am so inspired by Nikki. She is one of those friends that when I spend time with her, she makes me want to be a better version of myself. She's so motivated and driven, as you can tell when she talks to you about her impressive career journey getting to this point where she is now at the head, the boss of Marie Claire, arguably one of the most popular women's magazines in existence. She also opens up about her relationship with exercise and the different things that she does in her day-to-day to feel at home in her body. But as I told Nikki before she walked in today, I was really excited about the opportunity to sit down with her because she is so motivated and so driven. She gives so many excellent tips for anyone who is trying to find their way within their career in today's episode, as well as how to stay resilient when things don't go your way. Plus, she answers the question that so many people hit me with in the DMs on the regular. How do you own your no? How do you say yes to the things that empower you and respectfully step away from the slew of invites or hangouts or whatever else may not be serving you in the moment? It's sometimes, for sure, easier said than done. Make sure you're following along with us over on social. The show is over at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And if you're not yet subscribed to the Weekly Hurdle Newsletter, I want you to get the same inspiration, motivation, and stuff you love from the show directly in your inbox every single Friday. The link to do that, it's absolutely free, is in the show notes. With that, let's get to it. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting down with my dear friend, Nikki Oganaki. She's the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire. How are you doing today? I'm so excited to be here. I have, I, this is like one of it's the longest... It's been a long time coming. This is like the longest time coming. And it's so funny because there have been so many evolutions of Nikki probably since like it was first something that was discussed. When I introduce you as I just did, do you still have a second where you're like, holy crap. Yeah. I mean, up until probably two months ago, I would be like, oh yeah, I'm the digital director at Harper's Bazaar. I'm like, that's actually not my job anymore. Yeah. Editor-in-chief is interesting because I'm not surprised to find myself in this role, but there are moments where I'm like, oh, I'm the one in charge who let that happen. (laughs) (laughs) How did this happen to me? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Such a cool sentence. I'm the one in charge. I personally would have a hard time owning that sentence. Yes. But you realize if you're not going to own it, like who who will? Yeah. A hundred percent. 
100%. When you were coming up as a journalist, did you anticipate that this kind of path was the one that you'd be after? Not at all. Yeah. I did not anticipate um, this path at all, mostly because I've never really seen people who look like me in this role. And I've never... When I graduated from college in 2007, I like digital was barely a thing, you know, like we had websites kind of, and you know, that's not even like really to date myself. That was just like, yeah, they just weren't that big of a deal. And, you know, when I was an assistant and a junior editor, I thought that I was going to be a market director, which is in the fashion, um, the fashion department. And they're the people who sort of like liaise with the stylists and the photographers to make sure that everyone has the clothing that they need on set. And I quickly realized that I didn't necessarily want to do that. I wanted to write more. I wanted to have freedom in what I was covering and the things that I'd be able to do, where I'd, events I'd be able to go to. And working on websites and digital just like afforded me that. Yeah. And so you ended up spending more time doing something that at first you didn't necessarily think was going to be your jam. Right. And then I think as I progressed in my career, it just slowly but surely became a, a sort of situation where I was like, oh, I, I can do that. And I can do that. And I can do that. And I guess that's what being an editor-in-chief does is. Yeah. And, and so I'm here. <laughs> I can do all the things. And now there's just a title with it. Now there's just a title with it. Appropriately so, because so many people do all the things and there's absolutely no title, no money with it. It's just like the way of the journalism industry at this point. Right. And I was telling, I didn't in an interview um, a week ago, and I was telling the journalists that this job as an editor-in-chief is bigger than it ever has been before. When I Started uh, at Bazaar, I read Tina Brown's um, memoir, The Vanity Fair Diaries, which is an incredible read if anyone um, hasn't read it. It sort of talks about what her journey was like in the 80s and the 90s being editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. And not to diminish her job in any way because she is like one of the best of the best, but a lot of the job was, you know, giving parties, dinner parties and and schmoozing with people. And she basically invented the Vanity Fair party. And so doing that sort of stuff along with the the writing and the editing. But there was no social media. There was mm -hmm. no video. There was no, you know, TikTok. You being an influencer yourself, there was just like the words. Yeah. So now this job has grown, you know, three, four times what I could have ever imagined mm -hmm. it, it becoming. Yeah. You know, it's also so interesting because... I feel as though it's so much more these days, to your point, than being a figurehead. When you're talking about the Vanity Fair diaries and like having to be a schmoozer, like that essentially is bizarre to think that someone is at the forefront, quote unquote, they're in charge, right? And they're getting paid all of this money to do a fraction of the things actually at that time back in the day that someone like an editorial assistant or an assistant editor or a regular, like all of these lower, quote unquote, lesser roles. Yeah. And it's easy to find uh, resentment in that. At least I'm speaking from personal ex experience. <laughs> right. And it's funny because, you know, the job is big. I don't make nearly as much as, as Tina Brown <laughs> made back then. Um, <laughs> Does <and> anyone? <laughs> I don't know. Um, probably not. But yeah, it's just a lot bigger than it ever could have, I could have ever imagined it to be. I think that I'm happy having a little bit of everything on my plate. How does it feel to be a leader? How does it feel to be a leader? It depends on the day, honestly. Some days it's incredibly gratifying. Some days it's like some of the hardest things that I've ever done. You are not taught to be a leader, really. I think you have it somewhere innately. It's within you. And then you can read books or work with coaches or whatever to sort of like develop and grow and harness those tools. But the day-to-day is, it's different. It's kind of, it can discombobulate you some days. Mm -hmm. It can really fill you up other days. What do you think has been foundationally important to you yourself as you've stepped into your power as a leader? I like to talk about like when I became a digital director at Bazaar versus how I'm entered into editor-in-chief of Marie Claire. And the biggest difference I think is that I care less about what people think about me mm. as a person, mm -hmm. honestly. I was very um, concerned about how I would be perceived by my staff when I started at Bazaar. 
how I would be perceived as a Black woman who was entering into that role for the very first time when I was at Bazaar. And now at MC, I just kind of care less about it all. Mm. I think it's, uh, in part, it's because it's a less charged time. Like I started at Bazaar in 2020. You know, we were having a racial reckoning. We were having a media reckoning all at the, <laughs> at the same time. So it's a less charged time now to become editor-in-chief. But I think also in the three years that I was at Bazaar, I just sort of learned what I really need to care about and what I didn't. And so I'm, I've actively worked to sort of like leave a lot of that stuff behind. How does someone care less? I think somebody cares less in practice. I don't know how to describe to care less. I think it's practice. I think it's like honestly growing up. I think it's... Well, let's flip it for you, right? Because obviously there was a moment, I'm assuming, that you realized caring so much about the opinions of others wasn't serving you. Can you articulate or maybe land on when that was for you? Yes, I can actually. I think that the moment I realized that I was being kept up late at night and maybe other people weren't and my health was being diminished and other people were like fine in coasting. I was like, wait a second, hold it, hold on. (laughs) I am like dying inside and I'm, you know, like crying at night or like just so concerned and everyone seems to be just fine. And I was like, well, well, that can't be the way things are anymore. And so, yeah, there was sort of that flip where I was just sort of like, I can't sacrifice myself, my well-being, my mental health, and everyone else is just fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we call that on the show a hurdle moment. (laughs) (laughs) I had a hurdle moment. And and in that hurdle moment, uh, you said mental health, physical health. How was this like manifesting for you when you realized that these anxieties were really impacting you? I just always felt on edge. Like people would be like, how are you? And I always felt like I was about to cry. You know that feeling where you're just like, I'm and your throat like breaks a little bit and you're like, is that a tear? I said I was fine, but I don't know if I'm fine. And so just really tapping into that and realizing that like I wasn't working out as much and that was affecting my mental health and I wasn't getting as much sleep as I was before and sort of just working through all of those things and getting back into a fitness habit and getting back into, you know, just like waking up early and having coffee and a bit of a morning routine, all of that was really useful. Yeah. And it's it seems or sounds from the get-go, like it can be interpreted two ways. It can be interpreted as like, those things seem like very accessible and very easy. Or for someone who feels as though they're struggling with all of those things, you just talked about a morning routine and finding more sleep. It's like, yeah, but where do I begin? You just choose one thing. Mm-hmm. Like you honestly just choose one thing and try and stick to that. A lot of people are like, you choose one thing and you stick to it stick to it for 30 days or you stick to it for 90 days. Like I'm not an expert in that way, but I have found that when I look back on when I have felt my best and involved some sort of morning fitness and you start small, maybe that's 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 20 minutes just not feeling like rushed in the morning. And so waking up a little bit earlier to have the time to go through that morning routine um, and just being cognizant of when I haven't been doing those things, how I feel versus when I do do those things. Yeah. And I think such a big part of that, I love the, uh, the tip that you offered about starting small. A really big part of this when you say like notice is also maybe like actually making note, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you don't have the time or like the know-how maybe to reflect on how you're feeling in all of the different phases, whether it's when you're sticking with something or you're completely off of the bandwagon, then you won't really realize how it's Mm -hmm. truly making you feel. Yeah. And I I have learned... For me personally, that like I'm a planner, you know, I'm a planner. So I like to write down the workout in the morning. I like to block off the chunk of time. I've realized for me that working out for me in the morning is great because I feel like I'm giving myself something before I turn myself over to the team and everyone else who like will want a piece, you know, later in the day. And so just honestly, just being cognizant of that writing it down, planning ahead Mm -hmm. the way you would plan anything else in your life. Yeah. A meeting with yourself. Mm -hmm. For you, I know that, um, and as you've like kind of pointed out, the things that make you feel most like you, the best in your body, have a lot to do with health and wellness. Talk to me about what your relationship has been with wellness over the years as you have stepped into uh, arguably bigger roles within your career. I recently realized that I've hit my 10-year running 
anniversary, my run anniversary. Thank you so much. So in 2014, I was working at Glamour and I decided that I wanted to run, I wanted to achieve a goal that had nothing to do with work. I had like, that was what I wanted to give myself. And so I set out and I was like, why don't I run a half marathon? And then that turned into, you know, all of the stuff that comes around, like sort of running half marathons. So weightlifting and Pilates and yoga and all of the things. Um, And it was mostly because, you know, growing up, a lot of like achievement and success was always tied to work or tied to school. And I wanted something out of that. Um, And so my relationship to fitness and running specifically has, you know, ebbed and flowed, but I always come back to running. I always come back to running. I think it's the one thing that, you know, you ask any runner and they're like, it's the it's the free workout. Like you just need a pair of shoes and you can lace up and do it anywhere, which is true. And running has given me so much. It's taken me around the world. We were talking about Tokyo earlier. I went on a running trip to Tokyo, which is amazing. Um, and I've run half marathons in Paris and it's just a great way to sightsee, run all over Milan. And so I'll always come back to running, but I think as I also get older, I've realized that I need to incorporate some other things into the practice, into the wellness programming, which is where like weightlifting and Pilates has come in recently. Yeah. Do you remember how it felt when you made this decision for yourself to tackle such a big, scary, hairy, audacious goal? It's interesting. I've never thought I couldn't finish something. So the setting the goal and getting out there has always been the easy part, honestly. Because I've always known that if I needed to walk, I could walk. If I needed to run, I could run. Um, And really just run. We talk about running your own race a lot and running and really just sticking to that has been really, I think, helpful 100% in running, but has also informed sort of how I operate and move like outside of running. Yeah. And so when I set the goal, it didn't seem crazy or scary breaking two hours and a half marathon <laughs> does seem crazy and scary, which is probably why I haven't done it yet. Nikki um, has been on the breaking two quest like it's, for 10 years. It's the best though. Like everyone yeah. is cheering. It's everyone is I cheering. I am so cheering you on to do this breaking two. You know, it's so funny because as you were saying this, like really does uh, inform the other aspects of your life. As you were talking about, I have always believed that I could run my own race. I believe that that is a hard mentality to take on because of the nature of the highlight reel, the comparison trap that we so many of us fall into. And it really does reflect when you were talking earlier about work and you're saying like, I don't really care how people feel about me now. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I don't really care how people feel about me at work. I don't really care what anybody else thinks about me running this marathon. Like I'm going to be able to do what I want to do. I'm going to be able to do my own race. For those that hear this and have like a maybe an envy over your perspective, any tips, tricks, thoughts on how to inform them to maybe get to a place where they feel a little bit more comfortable about running their own race? I mean, I think it's what you said. A lot of people only share the highlights on Instagram or they only share, they only tell you the good parts. So I think one thing to remember is that the other people are going through hardships as well. And they are showing only their highlights, but they may not be showing their pitfalls. And I think knowing, for me at least, knowing that other people are going through things, knowing that other people are having pitfalls, like makes me a little comfortable with my own, knowing that I don't have to be perfect and no one else has to be perfect has really helped me sort of come into my own. I think the other thing that I've really been thinking about a lot recently, especially as I became editor-in-chief, is, and a question I get often is like, was this a goal for you? And I've it's never been about the goal. It's been about always loving the process. Mm-hmm. So my favorite moments when it comes to working out or when it comes to running is the process. It's the group runs. It's the seeing, like going for a coffee run with a friend taking the rumble class together with, you know, in community, it's never been about the end goal. It's always been, and especially when in work, in the work process, it's always been about like loving to throw headlines around with people, loving, like getting really excited about like seeing several people are chatting, several people are typing in the Slack room. Like that stuff really excites me. The process really excites me. And then the goal is just sort of like what what happens yeah. at the end of it. I was having a really beautiful discussion uh, with Natalie Kuhn from the class uh, about getting to a place where we realize that the outcome is not a reflection on who it is that we are. Mm. 
challenging, Mm -hmm. right? But the thing is, is that if you're doing the best you can with the process, then like, why are we going to judge ourselves when that is truly what's happening, right? You can't let feeling overtake fact. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about community and you talk about uh, being able to do what you love with other people, it's easier to kind of take stock or inventory about what's happening around you enjoying the process because you have other people to kind of sail the ship with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as we were joking, but yeah, I have been trying to break two for the last 10 years. If it really has destroyed, had destroyed me, I would have stopped running. Totally. You know, Mm -hmm. but there's something that brings me back. And honestly, the breaking two is not what brings me back. It's the process. It's the knowing that I set a date and I put my mind to something and I'm going to do it. I'm going to execute on it. It may be a little messy, but like I'll get I'll get it done. <laughs> and I can there are friends that I can tap into when I need help. All of that stuff is like the good stuff. The race is just like what happens at the end of it, you know? Taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about my sponsor at Element. Element's a tasty electrolyte drink mix that replaces vital electrolytes without the sugar and dodgy ingredients. I have been loving on my watermelon element packs, but of course they have flavors for every taste, whether you're a citrus or an orange person, or perhaps you want to warm up some element and go with one of their chocolate flavors for the absolutely most delicious dessert drink you have ever had. Trust me, in the winter, it is my go-to. I use Element all of the time, especially as I'm fueling these longer runs leading up to the Tokyo Marathon. I drink Element about 30 to 60 minutes before I head out the door. And I have so much confidence knowing that replacing lost electrolytes ahead of time is much better than chasing them afterward. The best part is that when you are drinking Element, it's so delicious, it's not a hard thing to do. Now, of course, Element has a deal for you. Head on over to drinklmnt.com slash hurdle to get a free sample pack with any order today so you can try all of the flavors that I love. Again, that address for freebies, drinklmnt.com slash hurdle. We're talking about community here and something that I have always admired about you professionally is that it's very clear that the woman that you surround yourself, you're all like on the rising tide. It's that like you have been able to dial in and find this really excellent group of women who have worked very hard in their career. And I feel like it's like, I'll see one of you succeed. And then like, literally, it's no surprise that the next day, like someone else has a really big moment. Talk to me about how it feels to have such an established group of peers that have become your friends. Having such an established group of peers who have become my friends has been such a blessing to me. Um, I have always said that I never want to be the smartest person in the room. So the reason that I am surrounded by such amazing people is because they are like pioneers or they are the smartest people who I can surround myself with and I can learn from them. I feel like they're, you know, we have our cup and it's always filled when I walk away from a conversation with them. I think it's really important to not be the smartest person in the room and to be always be able to learn from somebody. And so when I look at the past places I've worked, it's a blessing, honestly, like to be able to be good friends with somebody like Sally Holmes, who's the editor-in-chief of InStyle, or, you know, to count Leah Chernikoff and Samir Nasser as like friends and colleagues and peers at Bazaar. Like, it kind of blows my mind sometimes, mm-hmm. but it also makes sense because they are truly some of the smartest women that I know. Aside from the great level of intellect of these individuals, what would you say is a characteristic or something that you look for when you're like, oh, this person and me, like we're going to jive really well? I would say that in in all of the women sort of that I surround myself with, you know, you included, there is a pursuit of excellence, which I 100%, 1000% respect. You may not achieve, you know, every single goal on the mark, but there is a pursuit of excellence that I really, really respect. There's a curiosity. There is an ability to give of yourself 
and be willing to ask for others to give to you as well. There's a vulnerability there. That's challenging. Extremely. Mm -hmm. Extremely. But I remember I saw you at some point after the pandemic, like recently after the pandemic, Mm -hmm. and you were like, how are you? And I was like, not great. And you were like, same. Not great. <laughs> and to just have that moment where yeah. people, where when you ask, how are you? And it's like, really, how are you? Yeah. That's special. Yeah, it's special. And it's indicative that there is, in that instance, a mutual feeling of safety. Mm-hmm. I think that there's just so much going on in our day-to-day that it's super understandable when someone's walking around and feeling as though the only way they can answer that how are you doing question is with good. I mean, I feel like probably 92% of the time, that's the answer that you get because everyone is so busy just trying to handle that their own shit that they don't want to get to this place, like you said before, where you actually answer that question and you feel the tears welling up and everything is going crazy. You're like, I'm just trying to keep my shit together over here. Which is a great answer, yeah, honestly. <laughs> and more people should say it because I think there's something disarming about that. Unarming? Yeah. Disarming? Disarming. Disarming about that. There's something that is obviously taps into vulnerability. And when you are vulnerable, then that affords other people the opportunity to be the same. Yeah. I uh, I want to dial back to um, how you were speaking on having not seen many other Black women in roles like the one that you currently hold. Let's bring it to when you really got started in editorial. Did you, at that time, feel the same way? When I started in editorial, there were not a lot of Black people, people of color in these roles, especially at the brands that I had worked at. So at Vanity Fair, um, InStyle was like the outlier, actually. It was like surprisingly diverse. But Vanity Fair, Elle, Glamour, like I was one of a handful, one of like a couple. Um, And so I think in part, you can't really be what you don't see. So I saw a lot of people in like high, like, high fashion roles, you know, the market directors or the senior market editor, those sorts of roles. But the executive editor, who's the number two at the brand, never saw that. Editor-in-chief never saw that unless it was at a place like Jet, Ebony, Essence. Mm -hmm. And so um, I never really thought that it was an option. And I think in thinking about becoming, in becoming editor-in-chief recently, I think about like this cohort of women who are in their, you know, mid-40s right now who were just skipped over. They just never got the opportunity to become the executive editor, to become the editor-in-chief. And that feels simultaneously unfair, but it also puts a bit of a battery in my back to want to do better and want to open up opportunities for people that are are following me. Yeah. What tools or maybe like what mindset did you have to adopt to get out of your own way? Because as you said, oftentimes you didn't feel like you could be her because you didn't see her. So there had to be an internal dialogue going on that empowered you to step into the potential that you knew that you had. Well, honestly, it it came from other people saying, you can do this. I believe in you. You can do this. And I'd be like, I don't know. Feels like a big job. And they're like, that's fine. You can do it. It's like, okay. <laughs> well, in a nonchalant way as well. Like, I had a lot of people around me who were kind of like, you could be, you could be an editor-in-chief, obviously. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, what do you mean, obviously? Like, and they're like, no, yeah, of course you can do that. Of course you can be digital director. It's, mm-hmm. and it, not to say that the job's not hard, but it's not like, it's not rocket science. Like, right. like yeah, you yeah, can yeah. do it. Yeah. Like, you know, it's interesting though, because earlier in our conversation, you even said, like, I remember I was sitting in the room and I was thinking, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. But sometimes we do understandably need someone else to say something that could even be literally right in front of our face. Right. And can be the the trigger to you thinking you can do that. So mm-hmm. when somebody tells me that I can do something, I'm more likely to be like, Maybe I can. Mm, mm. I feel like there's a conversation uh, pending here about how to be your most confident self. And I mean, listen, I'm not saying that like I'm an expert, but I do think that you and I both have had these moments where you kind of have to put your big girl pants on and like put down the wine glass and say like, all right, I'm ready to do what I need to do. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, you'd 
get ready to do what you're going to do. And then in doing it, you know that you're either going to win and you're going to fail. And if you fail, then you learn from those failures. Mm -hmm. You don't, you can't let them define you because that'll just take you out, right? But you have the day or two where you're like, damn, that really sucked. And you just got to keep going. Yeah, it's that growth versus the fixed mindset. I think also sometimes uh, it's about maybe leaping before you feel as though you're ready. Again, going to that fact versus feeling thing. Big decisions, big moments. It's very rarely that you're going to walk up to bat and think, I am so ready for this. Like, this is entirely my race, my meeting, my promotion, my whatever. But if you're constantly in this place of waiting, then the only thing that's happening most likely is that you're standing in your own way Mm -hmm. to whatever it is that you want. Yes. And my other sort of like, while you're sort of, you know, waiting, quote unquote, I would say that you just need to be as prepared as possible. And so that is something that like running has really taught me. Like you can step up to that starting line at the race and be like, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go today. But you have your 14 weeks, your 12, eight weeks of training in your back pocket. And so you just have to trust your training. You don't know how the race is going to go, but you have to have faith in the work that you've done to get to this point. Mm -hmm. It's worked for me in running and it continues to work for me in my career. Something I started adopting uh, early last year was not only that SMART goals framework, but also this other acronym called AIM. And AIM stands for Acceptable, Ideal, and Minimum. So you can have a goal. Say you just mentioned running. I want to run a 5K in 30 minutes, okay? You might feel like 30 minutes is a stretch, but you can come up with these other benchmarks so you can still kind of garner or set realistic expectations Mm. for yourself. So acceptable is maybe running it in 32 minutes. Ideal is 30 or below. And minimum would be like in between of those two numbers. So it's like, I can recognize that I am capable of this thing. And depending on the day, X might happen, Y might happen, but whatever happens here, I still know that I can go after this goal and quote unquote succeed. Mm -hmm. I think it's really challenging sometimes when you're trying to put your big girl proverbial pants on to get to this point where you can truly understand that that failure, air quotes as always, is happening for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we don't work hard for things not to go as we'd hoped. I think that's like one of the biggest themes that I talk about on the show. But in reality, whatever happens is an opportunity for you to then be informed and then figure out how you're going to move forward. And in that execution of moving forward, it's up to you to bring those lessons with you. Because if you don't, then you're the only one that's going to, you know, be at a disadvantage for it. Absolutely. And whether you, I mean, I, this is the one thing I will say that has sort of um, been interesting in working on digital. You have to put out so much content. You have to put out so many stories, Instagrams, videos. Not everything is going to be a hit. Not everything is going to get the likes you want. Not everything is going to get the, you know, the clicks, the sessions, the views. But you learn from everything. There are so many learnings that you can take from every single piece of content or whatever that you put up, you create. And if you're not, taking those learnings, if you're not taking, understanding why something worked, why it didn't work, like, what's the point? Yeah, what's the point? You know, one of the reasons I was really excited to have you in here, besides using it as an excuse for us to hang out for an hour, was really for us to talk a little bit about your career, because I think it does shed some light both on just the industry as a whole, but also it's always fun for me to wrap around this stuff um, as a fellow journalist. So we've talked a little bit about the transition for you from print to digital, um, now living in like what this digital ecosystem is today, which was something that completely has changed the game. How has that transition been for you? Because you have lived so many different lives within this industry. I have in a lot of lives in the last (laughs) three years. I was telling a friend that like, I generally stay at a job for like, you know, three, four years. It just so happened during the pandemic that I like bounced around a lot. You know, I'm happy to be back at Marie Claire and doing print and digital and, you know, all of the things because it sort of is a culmination of, you know, everything I've been working on in the past. Um, You know, the job is 
massive, um, but it it fills me in a bunch of different ways every day. And so that's that's been great. When you say uh, we have to churn out a lot, <laughs> shed some light on what a lot looks like. I want to give I want to give the hurdlers a better understanding of what it means to do a lot. On the website alone, we're probably putting out, and I say we, I have a fantastic team of about 12, 15 we're hiring um, in new roles, but we're putting out about 500 stories a month and doing... We're posting on Instagram four times a day. We're posting on TikTok twice a day, once a day. We are posting on, we have our video arm. We're getting into live events. We're taking market meetings and, you know, doing interviews and all of the things. I'm working on a podcast. Like there's so many pieces of content that come into creating a brand these days. So it is a lot. Yeah. We're getting into live events. Me writes no. Marie Claire is getting into live events. Me follow up with Nikki about <laughs> Marie Claire live events. Um, I, what is any of that like? If I had to ask you which part of that makes you the most excited, do you have an answer? My newsletter is making me really I excited. I love your newsletter. <laughs> My newsletter, self checkout, is making me extremely excited. It gets me back to what I really love um, about this industry, why I wanted to get into this industry in the first place, which is just to talk about clothes with my friends. And I have been trying to create that sort of atmosphere with the the newsletter. It comes out every Saturday around 2 p.m. And it's my weekly sort of touch base with this community. And I talk about everything from what I've been wearing to go on long runs in the cold, to, you know, the coats that I'm loving this season, to Christmas gifts, to all sorts of things. And it's been a nice sort of opportunity for me to to just do a bit of the writing that I don't get to do much anymore. Yeah. As an editor-in-chief, again, many iterations of what you've done in your career, I want to talk a little bit about the art of interviewing, something mm. that you've had to get to be very acquainted with. When it comes to executing a good interview, what comes to mind for you? Interviewing people is a strange sort of skill to have. And I think very preliminary, it just starts with curiosity. I'm consistently surprised by the lack of curiosity amongst a lot of people. Um, I can go deep on like pretty much anything like you wanted to tell me about this bike over here for the next 15 minutes, I'd be like, okay, that's interesting. And I'll have 15 more questions to ask because I'm a genuinely curious person. And so I think a successful interview just starts with being able to have a good set of questions when you're going into the interview, really doing the pre-work that comes with an interview. So watching their movies, reading their past interviews to know what they've talked about in the past, what they like talking about, what they don't like talking about, interviewing, you kind of have to be ready also for it to sort of like go off the rails and you got to bring it back in, which is a a delicate dance, but you have to be a bit of a, um, like a a jockey almost and like being able to like tame the the horse back in, like bring, (laughs) bring the horse back on course. Interviews can be wild and they can be fun. You're not going to kill them all, but I also think it is just the art of like the practice and genuinely wanting to ask questions of people. What do you think that interviewing has done for you as a person? What interviewing has done for me as a person is it's just really opened up my eyes to just the art, the art, quote unquote, of conversation and really just being in conversation. It's made me a better listener. It's made me um, more excited to just like hear what people have to say. I can talk to anyone about anything I don't know. I think it's fun. It's made me, it's opened my world and it's just sort of like, it's brought so much to my life. What has it taught you about other people? That they love to talk about themselves. (laughs) It's really, interviewing has really taught me that people love to talk about themselves and they often don't ask questions about you, the interviewer, or, you know, the other person on the other side of the conversation. And so I've become cognizant of doing that when I'm in conversations. Yeah. Taking the second to be like, how are you? How was your weekend? And and it not be a sort of like cheesy sort of, okay, I've done the the first two questions and so now we can move on, but really just being cognizant of what it's like to be in conversation with somebody. Has it made you, your sense of awareness more heightened within your personal relationships? 
Yes, it actually has. It's made me realize that I don't talk about myself a lot. And then I'm often like, oh, it's fine. Or yeah, that's fine. We'll just, okay, that's like, that's cool. Or when somebody asks, you know, often how I'm doing, I'm like, it's fine. Like, but how are you and what's going on in your life? And da, 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 because I'm so used to like the conversation not being about me. It's always about the person on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so I've tried to sort of give more of myself in conversations and keep those conversations going Uh rather than just like giving a one word answer. How do you give more of yourself when you're not used to giving more of yourself? I mean, it's a practice. Like, it really is a practice. It's funny. When I started dating my boyfriend, he gave a lot of one-word answers. And I'd always be like, you got to give me more. What else? Um, And so just flipping that on myself and and challenging myself to give more. Mm. To say, like, what else? When somebody asks me something, how are you doing? Instead of saying, fine. Maybe it's a sentence. Today, yesterday was rough, but today is better. Mm. Okay, so then that gives the other person on the other side something to work with as well. Can you give the girlies dating advice here? Because can we talk about the fact that, like, someone hears that, like, he gave a lot of one-word answers, and Nikki's like, I'm persevering on this one. (laughs) I am. Well, I think it's the other thing that you just... Listen, I have not dated in a while. I've not been in in this space in a while. It's rough out there, I know. Ain't that the truth? From from friends who have told me it's rough out there. But I also see a lot of people who still have like weird rules around dating. So they're like, I'm not going to call that guy first. And it's like, Mm. why? If you like him, you can tell him that. It's At the very least, it gets it off of your chest. Like playing games never works. It's not helpful. So you might as well just cut to the chase. Cut to the chase. But again, like this is just like very clear that this is your stance like in all things. Some would say I'm blunt. Some would say (laughs) I don't suffer fools. And I haven't. I, you know, I think it is a part of like just who I am internally. And I guess it's sort of, I don't know. I don't know how I became this way. I think I was in part a little bit born this way, but also just sort of like, I don't have time to like sort of suffer fools. And I never really have. So it sort of trickles into every aspect of my life. I don't have time to suffer fools. What a line. On that then, back to the friendship note, I think that a lot of individuals have a hard time, especially as we get older, dialing into or having grace with ourselves as we grow out of relationships on that note. So when it comes to maybe upholding your own boundaries within the parameters of your time, what has worked well with you in that regard? I remember when I was entering into this industry and sort of first moving to New York, my sister and I were talking about something and she very casually was like, you know, everyone's not meant to come along for the full ride. And I was like, hmm, okay. That gives me permission to release what's like not serving me, release people who are not serving me, but also bring them back if they were going through something and... I don't know, maybe they had to work it out over there. Like, that's okay. Come back to me when you're done. There's always, like, there's a reason why I liked you in the first place. There's, boundaries are are good and they're necessary, but I also think that sometimes people are a little too rigid with their boundaries and there's not enough sort of flexibility in understanding that other people have boundaries and maybe they're not aligning with your boundaries right now, but they could in the future and you should be open to that. Yeah, that's a really challenging place to be in. That, You want to have strong boundaries, but you also know that in different seasons, people may be going through different things. And to be able to make decisions that are best for you without being rude, like you can be firm but kind, Mm -hmm. is literally like the biggest guiding principle that I feel like I've adopted across the board from my relationships to like the way that I do business. Absolutely. And I you know, there's a lot of conversation about boundaries and therapy speak and all of all of that stuff. But ultimately, my sort of thought process behind all of the things is like, are those boundaries or are you being an asshole? Mm. <laughs> like, ask yourself that. Are, mm-hmm. are you just not being considerate? Are you not being kind? Because you have your own boundaries and you think that your boundaries are more important than another person's boundaries? Maybe, perhaps, but like also you could just be kind of being an asshole. Yeah, 100%. And now these days, as you said before, 
your time feels like extremely, extremely limited. So how do you exercise upholding your boundaries when it comes to keeping your schedule? Oh, that's a process. That is something that is constantly ebbing and flowing. And knowing, I think the one thing that has been really helpful for me is knowing that my schedule will change and no two days are going to be the same. And once I've become comfortable with that, then making sure that if working out is, you know, because working out is important to me, I get it in somehow. Mm -hmm. So if I don't have time for a full workout in the morning, then I'll take the 20 minutes to walk to an appointment. And there's just a bit of flexibility that serves me and has helped with my schedule, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, as, as we love to call it, a uh, snack, if you mm-hmm. will. A snack, a, a Joe snack. Holder exercise snack. A Joe Holder exercise snack. And I think it's an acceptance of that, again, doing the best you can with whatever that. is happening. <laughs> Literally, like, with whatever is happening. Because if you have this idea in your head that things have to be a certain way, whether we're talking about exercise or we're talking about what I'm going to do on my laptop when you walk out of here, and you're not willing to pivot or like flow with the day, then things are going to get real hard. Things are going to get incredibly hard. I mean, my career, for example, when I was at L, I I was like, you know, I didn't get this big job. And my friend at GQ was hiring for somebody. And I was like, I'll go try that. Like, why not? What is going to stop me from going over there and trying that? Then the pandemic hit and this job at Bazaar popped up. And I was like, okay, I'll just go try that. And there hasn't been a, a rigidity in like the roles I have to have, the titles I have to have. It's been more so of like, what do I want my process and progress to look like in this stage of my life? And then when that's not serving me anymore or when I'm over that, I'll just go do this other thing over there. Like my career has been a bit of a jungle gym, I would say, where I'm like swinging from bar to bar, but have, I guess, achieved the top, (laughs) a bit of the top. (laughs) We're at the top part that looks like the the castle, like looking down on all the wood chips. Yeah. When you reflect on this career that you've had, which is nowhere near over yet, and you, if I ask you to articulate what the maybe biggest quote-unquote failure was for you and how that made you feel at the time, what would you say? I think when I was starting off in my career, going from Vanity Fair, where I was in, I was a closet assistant. So basically I had to manage somebody's schedule and I had to help sort of like funnel samples from place to place. I was horrible at that job. I was really bad. I think in part because honestly, I didn't really care about it that much. I Mm. think that I, I, and that taught me that I have to, if I'm going to do a job, I have to like it and care about it and be somewhat passionate about it. Otherwise, I'm just not good at it. I don't put my all into it. Um, And so that was sort of like my learning. We've talked about like takeaways. That was my takeaway from that job. But I was so bad at it. And being bad at something was just like horrible. Did that make you feel that like editorial as a whole was questionable for you? It made me feel like the fashion industry was questionable for me, for sure. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know if I fit in with these people. I think I'm amazing, so I don't know why these people don't see it. It made me question, like, you know, is is this the industry for me? At one point, I was like, maybe I'll go back to, I'll go to J school. Like, I remember printing out papers and thinking, like, maybe I'll go to Central St. Martin's for grad school. I don't know. And then I got a job as the style editor at Glamour working on the website And that's when I found my people. And that's when I realized, okay, this is what the fashion industry can be. Maybe Mm. I'm not meant to work in high, high fashion because I don't really care about it that Mm -hmm. much. Yeah. But I do like talking about clothing. I do like talking about personal style, suggesting things for people. And that's the that's the area that I'll go in, in the fashion industry. Right. So like every different turn informed how you took the next one. Absolutely. Would you say that this current situation is the proudest moment thus far in your career? Or do you have a different answer to that question? I haven't really thought about it, honestly. I don't... Like, sure. Yes. This is a great moment for my career. But like, this can't be it. Right? It can't yeah. stop here. <laughs> you have to be like, right? Like, I'm not even more? 40 yet. No. Like, this can't be it. So yeah. there will be other moments. And so I think for me, just taking it as 
not necessarily a stepping stone, but just taking it as like another sort of like moment in my work history. Yeah, I ask you that because I feel as though it can be one of those highlight real questions. It can be like one of those highlight real assumptions. Someone sees everything that you've done, the amazing travels that you've taken, and then the post where Nikki Oganaki is now the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire. And it's like, wow, talk about being at the top of the Jungle Gym castle, right? But there's so much that happens that's not on the reel that like is extremely impactful. Extremely impactful. There are so many great moments. I, you know, I look back at like what I've been able to accomplish, the people I've worked with at all of these jobs that I've had in the past, the people I've met. And that is the fun part for me. Like being an editor-in-chief is an amazing job and I am so thankful for it. The lead up to it though has been really fantastic as well. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a wild ride. You know, I, I think a younger version of myself would say my proudest career moment was like when Hurdle got in the New York Times. And like, yes, that was cool. And of course, like I did do things that then in turn had someone contact me and put it there. But realistically speaking, like I just got lucky. Like that was just like a lucky thing that happened, right? So then if I really reflect and think about like what my hard work has afforded me, Mm -hmm. I'd say like probably one of my proudest moments in my career was like the day I signed a lease for my own two bedroom. Absolutely. You know, like that's kind of like what I think about now. And it's just because I'm like a more evolved person now. I have a broader understanding of what the work that I put in every day, the small stuff and the big stuff is able to afford me, not just actually things, of course, but like what it enables me to do as I move forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think also that like when it comes to where we want to go, this is where we're going to transition now. You said like, this can't be it. But sometimes when you feel as though like you're at the mountaintop, you're like, well, what happens next? Oh, all the time. I had a moment... I can't remember where it was. I had a moment, though, where I was looking around me and there were a lot of sort of senior fashion editor, market director roles, which is the top of the fashion department. And I never really saw what happened after. Or you have these editor-in-chiefs and then they kind of just disappear into the ether and you don't really hear from them again. You don't know what they're doing. And so that is sort of scary because mm-hmm. there is a moment where you're like, this this can't be my last job. But like, what does life look like after an editor-in-chief? I don't know. Someone start a blog and tell me about it. Yeah. Well, I think what's awesome is like, that's kind of up to you mm-hmm. in that, what do you want it to look like? What excites you? What do you want to work on? What opportunities can you pitch? I remember when I got let go from self, I started pitching like entirely new roles to existing companies that like weren't like a thing. I just thought about like, I like your company. I know what I'm capable of doing. This is like maybe why you should hire me. And like, this is the job I would propose. And I had conversations that literally went on. Like, it wasn't just like, you're crazy. It was like, well, if I'm going to be crazy anyway, like I might as well try to do something for myself. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But shit is wild. Yeah. And for me, graduating from college, as I said, in 2007, half of these jobs didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So being a digital director when I graduated from college, like barely existed. Yeah. So that sort of informed how I operate in my career because I don't know what's coming. So when people are like, what's your five-year plan? I don't know. I don't have a five-year plan because something could be on the horizon that didn't even exist one year ago. Right. For someone else who hears that and thinks to themselves, I also don't have a five-year plan. What advice do you have to offer them? Because I think that generally speaking, the conventional thought is that you're wrong for not having that set in place. I would say think about the lifestyle that you want to live. So do you want to travel more? Do you want to work steady hours? Do you want to be home at more for your kid at night or in the morning? And really trying to find a job or something that fits into that sort of like lifestyle rather than warping your lifestyle to fit around a job. What excites Nikki right now? What excites me right now? What, I mean, so many things excite me right now. We're, I'm training for a half marathon, so that's exciting. It's frustrating and humbling at every turn, but that's exciting to like <laughs> go out and do eight miles and like kill it. Wow, that's amazing. Um, we're going into fashion week soon, so that's always 
exciting and tiresome and fun and fabulous. That is like actually a very fabulous part of my job is Fashion Week. It is as great as it looks on the internet. It is a very cool part of my job. And so getting to do that every six months is so special. Yeah. That's what you're excited about. Paris and Milan. Just Paris. Just Paris. Yeah. So I'm excited. Just Paris. I'm excited to just do Paris. I'm excited to go to Paris for six days and get to see some really beautiful clothing. And when you do something like that, again, like pulling back the curtain a little bit, can you just like talk broadly about the experience for those that are uninformed? Sure. So Paris Fashion Week is, or I should say Fashion Month in general. We we talk about Fashion Week, but it really is a month of shows across New York, London, Milan, and Paris. And a lot of it is going to these shows and taking in what the designers are designing, but also looking at the trends that are popping up across various runways. What excites me and what I love to see is the street style and what people are wearing in real life to these shows, how people are adopting the various trends that they have seen. Um, If There's a bit of a back-to-school moment, so that's always lovely to see friends again. But the process, like, through and through, you spend a lot of time going from place to place, seeing these shows, and then sort of doing a download with your team on the trends that you think are important, that you want to get behind, the new designers that you want to support, um, and then creating the content from there. Yeah. And so who pays for it? I do. Or my the company does. <laughs> the company pays for mine. Let me tell you, I do not have the influencer experience. <laughs> I, Dior is not flying me out, um, <laughs> journalistically, because whatever. But they are also, you know. Right. It's very interesting when I look at the landscape now of who is in these shows mm-hmm. and what the front row is looking like. Editors, influencers, buyers. There are so many different types of people in that room. But the biggest difference that I have seen is that there is a respect for digital editors and there's a respect for influencers that was not there 10 years ago. And when it comes to getting dressed for these shows, how does that work? It's a little bit of everything. Sometimes people will give you things. Sometimes people will loan you things. I, in the last few years, have really gotten into wearing my own clothes, which seems silly, but you can get caught up in the, like, wanting to put on a costume to be, or what I deem a costume. So dressing as you wouldn't normally dress to want to be photographed by the photographers, you know, when you're walking into shows or doing the street style. And so... I dress myself. Yeah. Oh. I just feel comfortable in my six own clothing. Days of, six days of outfits is a lot of outfits. Oh my God, 30 days of outfits. I'm exhausted by the end <laughs> of the month because you really are just cognizant of like, you're walking to a show. There are 40 photographers at any given time. Yeah. And you're like, what do I... I look crazy right now. <laughs> like, I'm tired. I, I really struggle with that, yeah. candidly. Like, just... I went through a really... I went through a period of time where I felt as though I was holding myself back because I didn't like it when other people had control of, like, my image. Mm-hmm. And I recognize in, you know, what I call my good to great era that I can't get to great if I'm so concerned of what other people are capturing of me, right? Like, I have an opportunity to do so much good, and that good hinges on, likely like, my availability and whatnot. And so it's just so interesting to me to think about being in a scenario where, like, there's just literally 40 cameras around me at any given moment. Right. And you can get caught up in having all those cameras around you, or you can just be like, I'm trying to do my job. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I got to get to this show. And so, like... Get your flick. I'm going to put my outfit on and I think it's great. Like, yeah. So and so who's watching on Instagram is probably going to leave a shady comment, but like, <laughs> uh, okay, fine. You didn't like this one. I liked it. Yeah. So I got to go sit and oh, watch the show. Word. Someone comes to your Instagram page, Nikki. They see the editor in chief of Marie Claire, dabbles in running sometimes, got lots of cool fit checks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Um, when I look in the mirror, I see somebody who is a hard worker. They're a great friend, great sister, great daughter, great partner. I see someone who is no nonsense, but honestly is like softy on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. I see somebody who's like really worked really hard to get to where she is and is proud of where she is. Mm-hmm. Right now, you have an opportunity to give yourself a piece of advice. Let's say going back to 
that time where you were just starting out, you told me that that was one of the most difficult moments in your career, trying to figure out if you had made the right decision. Knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself during that point? I would tell myself that this does not define you. Not getting this job, getting this job, hating this job, losing this story. None of it defines you. Find your worth outside of work. Find your worth outside of work. Oh, what a joy (laughs) always to have you. Nikki, for those that don't follow along with you just yet, give us your details. How can they keep up? Okay. You can follow me on all social platforms at Nikki Ogun, O-G-U-N. Subscribe to Self-Checkout, Marie Claire's newsletter that comes out weekly. And be on the lookout for a podcast coming soon. Podcast coming soon. We love more podcasters. I'll link uh, Self-Checkout in the show notes. I'm over at Emily Body and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. Do you want to say it? (laughs) (laughs) Another hurdle conquered. (laughs) Catch you guys next time. (laughs) 